Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. Well, hello and happy Easter. You know, one of the things we often miss is that Easter is not just a day. It is an inauguration of a new reality. And so now as a church, as we go throughout the church calendar, we step into this new reality of joy, of feasting, of celebration, of victory. And for me, I love to talk about the big themes of Jesus' kingdom, the things that he won for us on the cross and in his resurrection. I love to talk about cosmic shalom, about everything being put in its right place, about the longings of our heart being answered. I love to talk about the beauty of the story that began when God spoke the world into existence in Genesis, being brought into its fullest resolution as that word became flesh in Jesus of Nazareth. I love talking about how Jesus inaugurates a new creation and we are a part of a new humanity from every tongue and tribe and nation and socioeconomic background and race. It's why we as the people of God should be the biggest witness to what it looks like uh, to counter racism, to be a people that are against uh, people being dehumanized because of the color of their skin, because we share the table together. I love to talk about all of these big and beautiful things and I often find myself just shaking my head like that is so big I can't even begin to put it into words how would I ever convey that to our community how would I ever say that in a way that somebody else would understand it when I feel like myself I've come to the end of my words now I think these big themes are so vital and and really it's so important for us because it situates us in the story You know, if you were standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon, you would have a sense, not just for the magnitude of what you were looking at, what you were beholding, but for the the, the relative magnitude of your own self. Nobody feels big on the shores of the ocean or on the steps of the Grand Canyon. We get a sense for the scope, and that's so good for us. to inspire wonder and awe in us, to to realize that we can't take it all in. The resurrection story overwhelms us. Leslie Newbegin calls it a nuclear explosion of grace. And we as the church are in the aftermath, putting all the beautiful pieces together for the outcasts and for those in our world. But the way that Jesus conveys this world-altering truth The way that he tells them that literally the most important news, the gospel news, the good news that Jesus is alive, is almost scandalously small. You see, Jesus doesn't do it in spectacular ways. He doesn't go to the Roman centers of power. He doesn't go to the height of the temple in Jerusalem and say, guess what, everyone? I'm alive again. No, Jesus following his resurrection in a period of about 40 days where Jesus is resurrected, but still in this in-between time, not yet ascended to the right hand of the Father, which we'll see in Acts 1, he gathers where his disciples are. He shares meals with them. He laughs with them. He teaches them more about the kingdom of God. He tells them about the mission that he has for them, that he's going to send them out in all of their lack of training, in all of their weakness, but in His power, He is going to send them to the ends of the earth to proclaim this resurrection news. You see, Jesus, for whatever reason, in God's wisdom, 
doesn't choose to crack open the skies as God and say, guess what world, I'm God, believe in me. No, you wonder if there would be any choice in the matter for us if that were to happen periodically. No, rather, Jesus sends out a group of his followers to go and make disciples of all nations. And the beauty of Jesus is the way that he does things is always in harmony with the end that he's trying to achieve. The Jesus way is the way that illuminates what Jesus wants to accomplish. And as I was considering what we as a church in this moment, at this stage of our journey, as we're in year two of a global pandemic, as we all have been disrupted at some level and many of us have been suffering, and as I consider that piece of it, and then I consider what is the mission that awaits us? What does God have for us in the very near future to do? As I'm considering these things, I kept coming back to these images. These images of Jesus after his resurrection, risen and reigning, nail-scarred hands showing the disciples the, the evidence of his wounds, but also the evidence of his life. I kept coming back to these images the time between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension, where Jesus is just with his disciples. And listen, it's one of my life's greatest passions. One of my missions in life is to help Christians understand the big themes of the Bible, the big and beautiful story that the Bible is telling. Because I think so often, God is so much better than we realize. And it's often just because we can't trace the line from garden to city that God has traced in his love for us. But sometimes too, I think we need to just ask ourselves, what does this mean for me? To allow the resurrected Jesus to sit down on the other side of the table, looking us in the eye, and to narrate his story over our lives. He shows us the scars in his hands. He shows us the, the joy of resurrection victory, and he begins to shed light on that which he has for us. And then he invites us into a life of transformation. Now, the idea of a personal relationship with Jesus has almost become cliché. It was the driving force behind evangelicalism over the last, I would say, 200 years. And really, what's happened as a lot of the poverties of what it means to be evangelical have been shown up, I think there's been this kind of overcorrection as it comes to focusing on a relationship with Jesus. And so here's what I mean. The gospel is about individuals without being overly individualistic. And oftentimes what would happen in evangelical circles is they bought into the spirit of the age. The sort of rugged individualism that, that really defines America, not the kingdom of God, to the point where it often sounded less like expressions of the faith that we find in the Bible and much more like the way that the iPhone is marketed to us, right? Infinitely personalizable. You can make this whatever you want. And with it, you can narrate whatever story you want. And over the past several decades, I think that this phrase, a personal relationship with Jesus, has fallen out of favor a bit. There's been a, I think at some levels, a good and helpful corrective, and at other levels, kind of an over backlash to this emphasis on a personal relationship with Jesus. You see, the gospel story and the story of the church invites us into a story that has communal and corporate implications. 
And my hope for our church is to help us hold both of these things together. They're not even in tension. They work in harmony. Okay, And so there's the communal elements that we have to be a people of justice. We have to be a people who understand that our faith can never grow alone. We don't follow the way of Jesus solo. We do it together as a people. We bear one another's burdens. There's these communal expressions and themes that arise from the church. And we're going to do a study in the book of Acts this summer that will illuminate so many of these themes. But there's also... And again, this is the other side. There's also these individual elements. Paul beautifully illustrates this seamless interchange between the two. In 1 Corinthians, he's talking to the church at large. And he kind of just vacillates back and forth between the you of the the singular and the you of the plural. And basically he's saying you and you all. And he doesn't really ever designate, you know, especially in English for us, which one is which. But, But there's this beautiful interplay as we are the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ as individual parts. And we are the body of Christ as a whole. And as Jesus people, we are individuals without being individualistic. And over the course of this Easter tide, this is the season between the resurrection of Jesus, Easter Sunday, and what's called Pentecost Sunday, which we'll look at in May. Over the course of this series, I want to invite us to the very, very real and personal hope that Jesus has For each and every one of us. And as we're calling this series Personal Jesus, and if you know Depeche Mode, you can hear the echoes of the song right now in your head. But one more important note that I want to highlight, you know, sometimes we have to do these kind of longer introductions as we introduce a new series. With Jesus' resurrection, there is what biblical scholars have begun to call the already and the not yet. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 encapsulates this well for us. He says in verse 25, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And as we address some of the very personal themes that we're going to explore throughout this series, I want to constantly remind you, Ecclesia, that Easter is not about efficiency. It's not about meeting goals. It is about God with us. God going down to the depths of the grave, doing whatever it takes to be God with us. And what I mean is this. Today, I'm going to approach a subject and proclaim to you without apology that Jesus' resurrection offers us peace. That Jesus' resurrection means His peace is available to us right now. Now, your lived experience may be an uneven peace at best, and at worst, a complete absence of peace. And what I am not saying to you is that if you don't sense God's peace, then you are doing something wrong. Can I say that again? I am not saying that because Jesus says peace to the disciples and you feel an absence of peace in your own life, that that somehow narrates that God is either mad at you, that he's rejected you in some way, that you messed up somewhere along the road, that all of these things are true. There are many of us who struggle with chronic anxiety, a chronic lack of peace. But the already and the not yet nature of Jesus' resurrection means that we live with assurance in the presence. Paul calls this a down payment, an earnest payment, but we still await the fullness that God will usher in. Paul says that we see now in a, as though in a mirror dimly, but soon we will know in full and we will be fully known. And friends, 
I want to just keep that before you today, that this talk, this message is in, intended to invite you into hope, not bring you into condemnation. And so hear the promises of Jesus, hear them over your lives, no matter where you fall on this spectrum, no matter where you find yourself today, understand that Jesus' love is for you. You know, when we talk about anxiety, and I heard Mark Sayers once say, and I thought this was so true of our age, he said, we live in a world of ambient anxiety. W.H. Auden, in his poem, The Age of Anxiety, describes this at the turn of World War II as things seemed to be uh, just the center did not hold. The world seemed so fragmented, and we've seen this play out since that time. And I was talking to a college student in our community the other day, and she was talking about some of her friends, and she talks about the level of anxiety that so many people in her generation experience because of the narrative around the climate. You know, and, and again, I'm, I'm not talking any, there's no sense of what's true, what's not true. I, frankly, I don't know. I tend to believe the scientists that tell us certain things are happening. But wherever you are, what she was saying is that, that there's this sort of unspoken anxiety because it seems like the world is coming to an end. We live in a world that is not at peace with itself. One way or another, and many of us feel this deeply in our own bones, and so today, we're going to look at how Jesus narrates a different story. And as we explore this text today, I'm going to hopefully keep bringing you back to this sense of the already and the not yet. Let's get into today's text and illustrate how Jesus invites us and empowers us to live this out. John chapter 20. He says, When it was evening of that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, Again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now verse 19 tells us that the disciples have locked themselves in a room because they're afraid. Now when John mentions the Jews, he is talking about the same religious leaders that handed Jesus over to be crucified by the Roman authorities. Jesus' followers are afraid that with their leader being gone, they will all be rounded up just like Jesus was and they'll be killed for being party to a failed Messiah. Now, there's an acute fear, fear of bodily harm or pain, and it's not an all an unreasonable fear. Jesus was labeled as a rebel to the state of Rome, and everyone that was with him would be guilty by association. This is why Peter so vehemently denies that he even knows Jesus as Jesus is being tried. These disciples are suffering very real and very acute anxiety because of a, a very possible outcome. And I know so many of us can relate to this situation. Our fears oftentimes are not unfounded. They're often very real. And perhaps for ourselves, the fears that we hold, or perhaps for those that we love, or whether it's uh, our fear of are we going to be okay? Is our body going to hold up? Or the fear of emotional security, uh, the fear that maybe we've suffered with depression in the past and we're worried about the next time that it shows up. Or perhaps you're wondering, am, am I going to live my life alone? 
Am I going to be alone forever? Are there going to be people to know me, to, to, to care about me? Am I going to be okay financially? Am I going to be okay? Are, are my kids going to be okay? Are they going to be surrounded with good people? All of these anxieties are very real questions that are presented to us. These are acute fears. And it's what the disciples are experiencing in this moment. And we often, I, I think Christians do this so often, we often try to minimize fear as if it's just all in our heads or that it's something that we can always circumvent with the surety of the hope that Jesus has for us as if knowing that it's all going to be okay in the end always makes it okay at the moment. But that's simply not most of our experiences. Often when we know, often we know our fears at some level are irrational. And we've had enough fears that we've held in the night that have never come true in the daylight. But that doesn't stop us from feeling them. Now, you've probably heard the phrase, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Sounds great and everything, right? Everything we endure in this life that doesn't cause our life to be snuffed out, no matter how hard, eventually will make us into this super person, this really tough and strong person who can endure everything. But you know who first coined this phrase? It was Friedrich Nietzsche. Nietzsche, the same Nietzsche who suggested that the will to power is the only thing that matters, that suggested that those who are weak or poor and impoverished or infirmed were to be trampled over by the strength of those who were just inherently stronger. This is who said this phrase first. And so, let me just say to you very clearly, that phrase doesn't start or have anything to do with Jesus. So, this is one emotion that's swirling around the room, this locked room that the disciples are in, acute fear. And we're going to talk about this in just a moment. I do think there's a difference between acute fear, like those fears that, that face us about tomorrow. We see this in the life of Jacob as he faces the prospect of, of seeing Esau for the first time since he betrayed him. There's that kind of acute fear, right? That we feel. There's also uh, what, what we'll get into in just a moment, those who are afflicted. And this is a very different thing, and I want to spell that out in just a moment. So one emotion that's swirling around this locked room as the disciples are hiding in fear is fear. They are afraid. Acute fear. The second will manifest itself in nearly an instant. The end of verse 19 says, Jesus came and stood among them. This is something that we see that happens almost instantaneously as Jesus appears. And, and next week we'll see it even more clearly in John 21 as Danielle opens the scriptures for us. But the second emotion that is swirling around this room is shame. Imagine you had a friend in your life who never did anything but love you, who never did anything but serve you and call out the best in you. He even healed your mother. He washed your feet for crying out loud. And in his profound hour of need, when he asked you just to be with him, you fell asleep. And as he was being dragged off by authorities, as he, as he was being isolated and tried and confronted by the powers of the state, you denied you even knew him and you abandoned him. Imagine all of this happened. And then all of a sudden, that friend who was killed as a result of those events, is now standing in front of you. Now, we are complex beings. It's absolutely possible for us to ex experience a range of emotions in a single instant, for us to feel at one and the same time ecstatic joy, my friend is alive, and abject shame, and I left him to die. Brene Brown writes of shame. Shame is the fear 
of disconnection. It's the fear that something we've done or failed to do, an ideal that we've not lived up to, or a goal that we've not accomplished, makes us unworthy of connection. And this is a message that so many of us have received as true of our lives. And the appearance of Jesus, while amazing and beyond anyone's imagination, introduces shame into the room. Not because Jesus brings it, because that often is our default response. And for many of us, we experience shame in regards to God. We think that we should be further along. We think that we should pray more, that we should give more, that we should not do the thing that we've told ourselves we wouldn't do a thousand times anymore. The Bible describes fear of the Lord as the beginning of wisdom, but there also is an unhealthy fear of the Lord. Ronald Rollheiser describes this experience of shame as giving us what would be an unhealthy fear of the Lord. He says we harbor too many unconscious fears of God. Fear that God is not as understanding and as as compassionate as we are. Fear that God is not as big-hearted as we are. Or fear that God may be as small-hearted as we are. Fear that God does not read the heart and cannot tell the difference between a wound and coldness, immaturity and sin. Fear that God gives us only one chance and cannot bear any missteps and infidelities. Fear that God is threatened by our doubts and questions like an insecure leader. But this is not the God that we serve. What does Jesus say to this room, swirling with anxiety, with fear, and with shame? Look at this incredible scene. Peace be with you, Jesus says. And after he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Jesus says to them, Peace. And then he shows them his hands, the nails that were driven into his wrist and his feet. And then he says it again, just to make sure that they heard it. Peace to you. And all of God's peace emerges from what Jesus has done on the cross. The scars that he shows still bearing the wounds of his victory. Showing them that peace is not just a well-wish, an empty cliche to make them feel better. It is the prize of his victory. He has won for us on the cross. It is the first word of the new world. Fear and shame are replaced with rejoicing. And then in verse 22, it says, When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Tish Warren, in her beautiful new book, Prayer in the Night, walks through the evening prayer traditionally known as Compline. And she frames this practice of the church. And she frames it in two different chapters. She talks about praying for the suffering. Those that we talked about in acute seasons of fear, when we're facing very real fears about either the consequences of our actions or something that could be happening to us. And she talks about praying and lifting those people up. But she also talks in another chapter about praying for the afflicted, for those who endure things like terminal illness, chronic anxiety and depression, for those for, for whom those things are not going to go away swiftly, but may very well be a thorn in the flesh for the rest of that person's life on earth. And Warren writes of those afflicted, these are the ones whose bodies will never work well this side of the grave, who suffer loneliness that will not abate, who bear particularly weighty burdens and trauma, 
or have fewer nets to catch them when they fall. Now it may seem that Jesus is saying to all of us that once and for all, that his peace is accessible. It's ready right here, right now. And it's like stepping outside of your house on a sunny day. If you want to step in the sun, all you have to do is walk outside the door. Then the question becomes, why are those who are suffering? Why do those who feel an absence of peace not just walk out the door? Why won't they do for themselves what God has already won for them? Do they like suffering? Now, I'll tell you, if you've ever spent even a moment with somebody suffering under the weight of this kind of affliction, you know the answer is absolutely not. So, there must be something else going on here. Look again at what Jesus says to his disciples. And look at what he does. He says to them, peace. He shows them his scars. He breathes upon them and he urges them to receive the Holy Spirit. Ecclesia, for all of us, no matter to what level we wrestle with things like chronic illness or anxiety, Perhaps the peace of Jesus is not so much a gift that we can hoard, something that we can store up and carry around, but it is the very air that we breathe. Christ breathing on his disciples is such an intimate picture. How close do you have to be to breathe upon somebody? And is it possible that in all of our suffering, all of our fear and anxiety, the resurrected Christ stands in our midst, speaks his word of peace, shows us the passion of his love for us, and shows us that God always is the God of the sufferers, the one who suffers alongside of us, and then he stays with us sharing the very air that we breathe, breathing upon us the stunning reality of his presence. The resurrection says, in fact, yes, this is the good news. God with us. God has won the victory already, but he is bringing us into the fullness of that victory. Not yet. And for those who are afflicted with chronic anxiety and depression, and I know there are some among us in our community, Jesus' word of peace is no less a word of peace to you. It's not something that God is holding over your head and saying, this could be possible for you if only. It's not an expectation that eventually you'll, you'll get over it, right? It's an invitation that no matter the depths you find yourself at, you will find Jesus there, sharing the very air, even the air of suffering and affliction and anguish that you breathe, you will find the resurrected Christ there. And again, he will say, breathe and receive again the gift of my Holy Spirit, my presence and my power. And I also want to say to those who suffer, and again, we're, we're making a distinction. I think it's an important distinction. We all, we all face at some level suffering and anxiety. At different levels of our lives, different seasons, we all endure those kinds of things. But there are those among us who endure this at a chronic level. And I want to say to those, uh, to all of us really, uh, therapy, counseling, and medicine prescribed by doctors, not that we choose ourselves, are all such helpful tools as we seek to embrace and move towards the peace that Jesus has for us. And you should feel absolutely zero shame in using them. And as he breathes on us, we breathe out as well. There is an exchange here. 
We breathe out our burdens. We breathe out ourselves. And we breathe in His resurrection life. But here's the thing, and this is why the already and not yet paradigm is so important, especially as we uh, think about this for our own lives. If you were to take a deep breath and hold it in and determine that you were never going to breathe again, well, you wouldn't be alive for very long. Breathing is a constant and infinite exchange. And breathing in the peace of Christ, we receive the gift of His Spirit. We find courage anew. We find clarity and power to keep going that doesn't come from us. And for many of us, when we are faced with things like fear and anxiety and shame, the reality is we don't breathe in the peace of Christ, right? Our breath gets short and we start trying to solve the feeling either by distraction or action. I noticed for me several months back that when I would experience a negative emotion, when I would find myself, my anxiety triggered to some level. Uh, for instance, if I was in bed late at night and thought of something that I should have done the day before, that something uh, ahead of me in the day that was to come, I would immediately reach for my phone. I was using my phone as a coping mechanism to deal with my own anxieties. Now, for others of you, you know when you've felt the world spinning out of control, you've tried to grab the reins. You power up, right? And you say, I got this. I will figure out a way to, to push down these feelings to a point, and I will get stuff done. And the peace of Jesus is not found in either our action or our distraction. It's not try, found in our frenetic trying to make something happen, nor in our trying to ignore all that faces us. Look at the scene one more time. Jesus comes to them. He speaks to them. He speaks to them His word of peace. He shows them His hands and His feet, and He breathes upon them. Then He gives them His mission. Sanctification is the, is the doctrine, the idea ascribed to that which God patiently and slowly walks along the road with us. But it's not just that He's God with us. He is that, and it's so good. But that God with us transforms us, however subtly and however slowly this may happen. And for some, some transformations in our life happen in these real peaks. Like we experience a rapid transformation in others. And I think the most beautiful things that God has for us, things like peace and hope and joy, these things are born out in our lives over the experience of our lives as we experience God with us. And I think, the, especially those of you who have been Christians for a long time, we often do ourselves a disservice. We think that those big and beautiful concepts, the things that Paul describes as the fruit of the Spirit, things like peace, things like joy, things like freedom, should be easy for us. Those should be the things that we have figured out. And that, that out of that life, we should spend our time figuring out, okay, how do we stop doing habit A? Or how do I, um, how do I stop uh, thinking about myself only in these situations? But look at the lives of these disciples, these very people who would stand in the room with Jesus. This was not the last moment that they were anxious, afraid, or ashamed. Far from it. In the same moment that Jesus speaks his word of peace, he breathes upon his disciples and he breathes out his spirit as a way of illustrating that to find the peace of God is to find a daily, momentary awareness of God's very presence. Peace is available to each one of us, not as a command, 
but as an invitation to breathe in deeply, to find Jesus in our joy and in our doubts and in our suffering. The children of Israel, when they were brought out of slavery, were were in a way brought on a wilderness way of sanctification. They were being reminded to rely upon God and His provision. And the way that that showed up in their life was through the thing called manna. It was the way that God gave them food to eat in the morning. He provided for them. But the caveat was, if you tried to gather more than what you would need for the day, then the rest would spoil overnight and you would wake up needing more the next day. And the peace of Jesus is like this. We have to turn our attention to it. It is available to us. We have to pursue it. We have to lean into it. We have to allow God to come and stand in the locked doors of our lives. And as he does that, he brings his very real peace. Paul describes this peace as a peace which surpasses all understanding. And he has this available to us. And as a church and as a community and as individuals, Jesus is saying that word to us anew, peace. And Ecclesia, as we approach this new teaching series, as we live on the other side of Easter, I want to say this to you as a declaration of faith. You see, friends, these are sometimes the scariest things that I promise to you. I feel like some sort of emotional prosperity gospel teacher. To say that Jesus' peace is for you, and I, with all the caveats, all the nuances that I've hopefully applied, that hopefully illustrate this as an invitation, not a commandment, not an expectation. But I want to say to you that for those of you who are in acute seasons of fear, who who sense a rising level of anxiety, Jesus' peace is available to you. Paul says, cast all your cares upon him. Give him all your thanksgiving, give him all your worries and anxieties, and you will find that the peace of Christ not only meets you, but guards your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And for those of you who struggle, with, who wrestle under the weight of chronic anxiety, of chronic fear, chronic shame, I want to say to you, Jesus will meet you in the midst of every season. And also, I want to say to our church at large, for those of us who have these folks in our lives, our call is to be the hands and the feet of Jesus. Jesus shows the disciples his hands and his feet. Our call is to be that in those people's lives. Not to say, hey, it's, it's been two months. Are you, are you still dealing with that? But to say, come what may, as long as it takes I am here. This is the gospel resurrection hope that Jesus offers to each one of us that no matter what throughout the course of our lives that we face, his peace is there because he has gone down to death and conquered it coming out the other side. There is no place that we could go that is absent of God's peace. And in the midst of this life, God's peace in ways that surprise us, in ways that surpass all understanding, is available to us because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Grace and peace to you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.